Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for bearing with us. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. We would like to thank our sponsors for today's program, Phillips Lytle, the Chautauqua Region Community Foundation, the Chautauqua County Industrial Development Agency, FORCON, the Jamestown Bar Association, Jamestown Baseball, better known as the Tarp Skunks, and Century 21. So to lead in to today's discussion, as always, I go look for a Jackson speech or writing. And for today, what I found was a February 1942 address that Justice Jackson gave just about 12 weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor at the University at Buffalo. And he talks about how the United States faces an uncertain future. And the address is entitled, Youth Faces the New Order. It ends with a more hopeful tone, though, about how the American people could engage and defeat their enemies. And so I've cherry-picked a few paragraphs for you today. We, too, battle for a new order and for a peace that can be found only on democracy, a virile and militant democracy growing outwardly to embrace peoples who have never known it and growing inwardly among the nations that profess it. It would apply reason and concepts of justice instead of the torch and firing squad to cure the world's ills. The state is conceived to be the instrumentality of the people, not their master. And men are held to have inviolable personal freedoms of soul and mind and expression. We arm our people to win this world order with the franchise, with individual dignity and civil rights, weapons that the access dares not put into the hands of its subjects. And through such weapons, the old order can be reshaped and we ultimately can realize all that the access promises to its people and freedom and peace besides. The panels today will be moderated by Greg Peterson, one of the Jackson Center co-founders and of counsel with the law firm of Phillips Lytle. And now I am pleased to introduce our first panelist who you see on our screen. David L. Crane is the founder and curator of Making the Movement Civil Rights Museum. He is a history instructor at Alamance Community College in North Carolina. He is the author of Making the Movement, How Activists Fought the Civil Rights with Buttons, Flyers, Pins, and Posters. 
And Making the Movement is an exhibit that explores how those in the movement, in the civil rights movement, used nonviolent weapons to combat Jim Crow. David, I'll turn it over to you. By the way, good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Greg. Hey, for the for the benefit of those of the fans here who are watching this, uh, either live or and many of them uh, via web, to put this into a little bit of a context, you and I had an opportunity to showcase this exhibit, which has now been memorialized in this new book out back in 2013 at the Robert Jackson Center. I think the world premiere, let's just say the world premiere was here. That's, that's absolutely correct. In 2013, uh, uh, Making the Movement Civil Rights Museum debuted at the, at the Jackson Center. Um, I think it was there for, for a few months and school groups came and um, there was great feedback and you know, really, really convinced me that, that I really had something here. And especially the reaction by uh, the people that saw the exhibition really put a fire under me to, uh, to, to start working on the book. And it's been a long process, but it's a real pleasure to sort of come full circle uh, and now talk about the, the book at the Jackson Center where the exhibition debuted in 2013. Well, ironically, one of the great pictures we have is uh, your dad uh, showcasing your exhibit to Chief Justice Roberts, small audience. You know, so it was kind of a really neat. And then from there, you went down to Meadville, Allegheny College, and Julian Bond was there to see your exhibit. So early on, uh, you really had some uh, well-placed spectators. Yeah, Greg, and you know, I, I I personally thank you for reaching out to me when you uh, realized that uh, you would be interviewing Dr. Bond at Allegheny uh, College. Uh, he was there uh, giving a, a speech as part of their celebration for the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. And you reached out to me and said, "Hey, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Bond. What do you want to ask him?" So I, I hey, just ask him about the the objects, the buttons, the flyers, and just ask him if, if he thought that was significant. And uh, to my delight, you interviewed him in front of the uh, exhibit at Allegheny. And watching his interview, which is, it, which is available on, on YouTube as well as makingthemovement.com, his, his interest, his enthusiasm, you know, really, really showed me that, that this was a significant and understudied aspect of the movement. He and I got to know each other because of that. And, and he really personally encouraged me to, to write the book that we're here to discuss today. So thanks to you and, and the late Dr. Bond for that. You're, I just, I'm gonna launch, let you launch her into the book for just a second, but I, I think it's important to that the book, uh, you dedicate it to the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. These men, women, and children used nonviolent weapons to combat Jim Crow, and because of their brave actions, we all continue to benefit from the world that helped create. And your book, entitled Making the Movement, How Activists Used Buttons, Flyers, Pins, and Posters to Fight for Civil Rights, really refers to this material culture. Yes. Uh, and a little discussed and a little written about aspect of the civil rights movement. I think we've all gone to flea markets and seen usually in an area pins like similar to what you're wearing. By the way, for those that are here, we have those pins we have available that never really fully appreciated 
that aspect of it until your book. So I read your book with interest and I'm anxious for you to chat about it. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, I always tell people that um, I think for, for so long, these objects have been hiding in plain sight. As you said, we've all seen it. And when I started making the movement, I, of course, as a historian, wanted to start with the research. And I'm going to start with reading all of the books and the articles that have been written about this. And I expected there to be some, at least. And there really wasn't. So this is something that I'll, I'll get into with the, with the presentation. But it really is, you know, the, the, the first work to, to focus specifically on this material culture. So... If it's all right with you, I'd like to share screen. And... Go ahead and launch. I just want to do some introduction. Yes, please. Okay. So again, my name is David L. Crane. I am the founder of Making the Movement Civil Rights Museum. I'm also the author of Making the Movement, How Activists Fought for Civil Rights, with Buttons, Flyers, Pins, and Posters, published by Princeton Architectural Press uh, in New York. The book is the companion to making the movement Civil Rights Museum. And I think that's something that is important is that 99% of the artifacts featured in the book are part of the museum's collection. They're not sort of stock photos found on the internet. And making the movement is a, is a traveling exhibition about the material culture of the civil rights movement. There's a, a great picture, Greg, I think, sort of that hiding in plain sight. We've all seen these images from the March on Washington. And when you just sort of see it with fresh eyes, you realize that as Dr. Bond one time said to me, this stuff was everywhere. So I think it's, in, it's important to first recognize and to point out that these objects were not souvenirs. They were the nonviolent weapons that fought Jim Crow. They were tools in a toolbox that activists had. And they reflected the changing goals, tactics, and objective as the movement progressed. So what they do, that's important. Uh, I mentioned earlier that it, this book fills a gap in the literature, both about the civil rights movement, as well as the scholarship around material culture. Buttons and signs are sometimes mentioned in books about the civil rights movement, but the, there's never been an analysis of the impact that these objects has. It's sort of mentioned in passing. Um, so it fills a gap in that scholarship, but also in the scholarship of material culture, which has completely ignored the, the civil rights movement in the United States, even though that material culture was everywhere. So what did these objects do? The phrase that I often use is that these objects helped achieve objectives. And that's key. They helped spread the word, let people know the purpose of these marches. The march is not the purpose. The goal is to effectuate change. And those objects helped people understand the purpose. It can recruit new members. People keep wearing those buttons. Their friends, their neighbors, people in the community ask them, hey, uh, why are you wearing that? What's the cause? How can I join? It recruits new members. Those people pay their dues. It raises money. They can use that to influence legislation, organize their own marches and protests, and ultimately change minds. None of this would have been possible if people had not 
thought differently about it. And my argument is that material culture was uh, uniquely influential in achieving these objectives. So whatever your definition of the civil rights movement, material culture was there. Material culture was critical to the tactics and strategy of the movement as it evolved. Now, making the movement uses periodization to help us understand the movement. And I understand that there is a little bit of hesitation sometimes to do that because the argument is that it creates a, a master narrative, one overarching message. This is what the civil rights movement was. And the criticism is that no one really gets to define that because the civil rights movement isn't one thing. For many people, it's the, the, the late 50s and 1960s. Making the movement brings that struggle all the way back to emancipation and continues that argument, that thread all the way through the Black Lives Matter movement of the 21st century. So whatever your definition of the civil rights movement, material culture was central to that struggle. For example, here you see the executive committee of the National Negro Business League. You can see them all wearing these, uh, back then were called badges. Uh, you also see Booker T. Washington, he's seated here in the center. So regardless of the organization, the time period, the issues that they were dealing with, they all used material culture to try to achieve those objectives. It was part of their strategy. So this is where the exhibition begins. This is a carte de visite uh, about the Emancipation Proclamation, letting people know about it, celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation. So material culture influenced the civil rights movement from its origins. And after the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to the Constitution, despite these constitutional protections, these civil rights, African-Americans in the United States continued to struggle against systematic oppression, a growing system of Jim Crow. In the 19th century, material culture was used to help mutual aid societies and fraternal organizations. Um, and in the early 20th century, coming out of the Niagara Movement, the NAACP formed in 1909 and used material culture to achieve those objectives from the very beginning. The NAACP was really the first organization in the United States solely dedicated for the fight for civil rights. And they employed material culture from the very beginning. Now, African-Americans were not allowed to serve in the United States uh, armed forces during World War I, even though many wanted to. In fact, some went to France to serve in their military. The, the famous Harlem Hellfighters were famous for their, for their bravery and their dedication. They received the Croix de Guerre, which is the French equivalent of our Medal of Honor for their efforts. And when they come home to the United States, they go and help defend democracy. And when they come back to the United States, they are faced with a system of Jim Crow, which denies them the very civil rights in which they fought for. And during the Great Depression, civil rights organizations worked with labor groups trying to create a connection between working class whites 
and working class blacks. The NAACP during the 1920s and 1930s was focused on uh, an anti-lynching campaign. In the 1930s, that became known as the Crusade for Liberty. And the NAACP used the sale of these buttons to help press for the passage of legislation. Y'all, let me remind you that only this year, lynching became federally outlawed. And I always think about those activists who were facing a, a Ku Klux Klan that numbered in the millions who toiled their lives working for something that was not achieved. So we've got to think of this movement as something much broader than just say the, the, the sit-ins of the 1960s and the March on Washington. This is a generational struggle that used material culture to try to help achieve those objectives. Now, during World War II, most civil rights organizations initially opposed the entry of the United States into the war. Their argument was, we must focus on the home front, creating jobs, fighting racial discrimination. How can we go fight a, a white supremacist regime when we are faced with one at home? But once the United States entered the war, they understood that there was a danger in continuing that line of reason. And instead, they used the patriotic language of the war effort to link that with their effort to combat Jim Crow. We're gonna go fight the Nazis to end a white supremacist Reich. And yet we're supposed to be okay with a white supremacist regime back in the United States. So during the, the war, civil rights organizations use that patriotic uh, language in order to try to get to the passage of legislation and to change minds. Roosevelt issued the executive order 8802 and the Fair Employment Practices Commission that was implemented was really the, really the first major crack in the armor of segregation in the United States and allowed for thousands of black soldiers to serve in the war effort. This was really a turning point for the civil rights movement in the United States. Americans saw the participation, they saw the patriotism of African-Americans and they began to, as a result, rethink their support, tacit or otherwise, of segregation, disenfranchisement, and the continuation of Jim Crow. So this was really a turning point in the movement and public opinion for the support of civil rights. Just as an aside, this is a membership button issued to members by the NAACP in 1946, just after the war. I love this button and this pinback. It really encapsulates so much about the significance and the importance that these objects had on the movement. To us, it looks a little bit retrospective. We can learn about the movement during World War II with it. But we have to remember that for them, this was a nonviolent weapon. This was a tool in the toolbox. This was a badge of honor. And the phrase, finish the fight, 
to me encapsulate so much the goal of the movement after the war that I made it the title of chapter one. It just sort of highlights exactly what the argument of the book is all about. Along those lines, this is actually the very first button or pin that I ever purchased, the first artifact related to the civil rights movement that I purchased on eBay for like $20. When it arrived, when I, when I held it physically in my hand, it was like a lightning bolt. I, I began to realize what had drawn me to it in the first place. Here is an object, a touchstone from the movement that we can relate to now, but more importantly, had a direct real world result on one of the most important events in the civil rights movement. You can draw a straight line between an individual paying their membership dues to the NAACP, which after the war, membership increased ninefold in the NAACP. They use that money from new memberships, from the sale of these pinbacks. You can draw a straight line from there to the legal team of Thurgood Marshall and uh, the overturning of Plessy versus Ferguson with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. So this is the one, this is the, the object that really launched making the movement as, as a real ideal. Resistance to the Brown decision was immediate, swift, widespread, and often violent, but challenges to segregation continued and they all used material culture in order to achieve those goals. The Montgomery bus boycotts, which was originally planned to be a single day event, used uh, mimeographed flyers to help spread the word about what they were planning to do. But after near 100% compliance with the boycott, civil rights leaders in Montgomery decided to extend that indefinitely until buses in Montgomery were desegregated. This comic book, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story, which is still used by civil rights activists and translated into different languages around the world to this day, helped people understand the tactic of nonviolent dis civil disobedience. But it also helped spread really the myth about Rosa Parks. It depicts her as almost a, uh, a, a hapless bystander who, who didn't really understand what she was involved with. The real Rosa Parks could not have been further from the truth. She was a longtime civil rights activist in Alabama before the bus boycotts, which were in planning for years before she stepped on that bus. And when she did, she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew exactly the strategy that was, would continue and was in constant communication with civil rights leaders throughout that struggle. But objects like that also help solidifying people's minds a, a civil rights movement. We take for granted that this was a national campaign, a national struggle that people realized. And this material culture helped solidify this notion that there was a growing civil rights movement. 
And in the first half of the 1960s, which many people would consider to be maybe the, the height of the civil rights movement, I would say largely because some serious gains were made, some, some monumental victories were achieved in this period, but they were generations in the making. And I would argue that those victories were achieved because organizations worked together. Long-standing organizations like CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, which was formed during World War II, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP, began to work with uh, largely student groups like SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, to, to help organize things like the sit-in movement, the Freedom Rides, and the March on Washington. The sit-in movement, which began about 20 miles away from me uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, was significant, but it took six months of daily sit-ins in order to desegregate one lunch counter in one Woolworths in one town. What made the sit-in movement significant is that it spread to hundreds of other places around the United States. And it's material culture that helped make that movement possible. It spreads the word, it recruits new members, it raises funds, and it is that spreading of the movement, which is the reason why we remember those sit-ins in Greensboro today. There were many business owners who begrudgingly desegregated their business to avoid the protests that they saw coming. And material culture was central to that effort. Same thing with the Freedom Rides. On the surface, the goal is to charter some buses from DC to New Orleans. But most Freedom Riders, y'all didn't make it to New Orleans. Most of them spent that summer in jail or the hospital, but it is material culture. The media coverage that that got that let people know this is the kind of resistance you meet, that segregation is still alive and well. And it is these freedom rides and the accompanying material culture that led to the outlawing of segregation in interstate bus travel by the Kennedy administration. But probably the, the pinnacle for a lot of people in terms of the, the civil rights movement, particularly in the 1960s, was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, August 28th, 1963. We've all seen this image. Did you notice the buttons? <laughs> We've all heard the I Have a Dream speech. Millions of Americans tuned in to the March on Washington. They listened to the I Have a Dream speech and thousands and thousands of these buttons were produced in different sizes, in different designs, some black and white, some in color, and they handed those out at the march. All of this was recognized by the media, all of the photographs and the news coverage and the newspapers that covered the movement showed people wearing buttons, holding pennants and signs, hats, but the purpose of the march is not the march. It's not the media coverage. The purpose of the March on Washington was the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which was languishing in Congress. It took almost a year after the march 
for the Civil Rights Act to actually be passed, which was its original purpose. And I would argue that material culture played a central role even in the passage of the Civil Rights Act because, hey, people wore these home. They wore those buttons home. They took those pennants back. They took those hats back. And people in their hometowns asked them about it. What was the purpose of that march? I see your button. What organization? Can I join? Can I volunteer? Can I call my, uh, write a letter to my local legislator showing support for the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which was a monumental achievement, striking down segregation, making segregation illegal on a federal level in the United States. This was one of the pillars of Jim Crow and one of the most significant accomplishments of the civil rights movement and material culture helped it happen. So after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, a major goal was accomplished and civil rights organizations and activists pivoted to knocking down the other pillar of Jim Crow, disenfranchisement. Material culture was there at Freedom Summer in Mississippi and Alabama, registering Black voters. It was present at both Selma marches, which helped put pressure on legislators to pass the Voting Rights Act, which was largely gutted in 2013 and is still under threat and will likely be gutted further again very soon. But in just two years, the two major pillars of Jim Crow had been federally outlawed and material culture played a significant role in that achievement. So after these two major victories, as Dr. King said himself, where do we go from here? What are the goals now of the civil rights movement and what are the best tactics to achieve those Ends. For Dr. King, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, that goal became one of ending poverty and his Poor People's Campaign, as well as uh, the war in Vietnam. So immediately after, we see the movement, and there had always been divisions over objectives and tactics within the movement. But after the accomplishment of these two major victories, we see a, a diverging of goals and tactics, particularly after his assassination. His assassination did not create these divisions, but they did uh, hasten and deepen pre-existing divisions in the movement over objectives and tactics. The question becomes, what are the goals of the movement and what are the best tactics to achieve them? Do we focus now on electoral politics, using the Voting Rights Act to get people elected? Do we use continued protests and direct action? Or as many people are argued, militant self-defense and even black nationalism. The point is that whichever goal or objective and whichever tactic organizations and activists advocated for, they all, used material culture to achieve those stated objectives. So for electoral politics, the argument is let's use the Voting Rights Act 
Let's get people registered. Let's put uh, candidates on the ballot that support civil rights. Here is a, a, a pin back for Charles Evers, the brother of the murdered civil rights activist, Medgar Ev Evers. And they use it to uh, elect a candidate who supported the cause of the civil rights movement. And Charles Evers became the first black mayor of Fayette, Mississippi in 1969 as a direct result, of course, of the Voting Rights Act, but also because of the material culture that his campaign used. Many people argued, that's great, but we also have to continue to put the pressure on using tried and true tactics of protest, sit-ins, nonviolent civil disobedience and advocacy. And at every stage throughout the 1960s, material culture was used to achieve those aims. This is a, a, a brief a pamphlet about the Wilmington 10, where I went to graduate school, actually. Shout out to the UNCW Seahawks. The Wilmington 10 were uh, a group of advocates, uh, activists who were falsely accused of arson in 1971, and it took decades for those convictions to be overturned, and material culture was central to that strategy. But many others argued We've got all three branches of the federal government saying that segregation and disenfranchisement are outlawed. And yet racism, disenfranchisement, segregation, and violence against African-Americans continued. So organizations like the Black Panther Party and Huey Newton argued, why don't we have the right to defend our safety and our civil rights. You wouldn't argue that a white person doesn't have that right. If someone is threatening their lives and their safety, you would say that they would have the right to defend themselves with violence if necessary. So why don't black people have that right? And whichever one of these strategies and tactics individuals and organizations advocated for, they all used material culture to achieve those increasingly divergent goals, aims, and tactics of the movement, especially after Dr. King's assassination. So the civil rights movement is not over. We've all witnessed that in the events of the past generation. And I'm often asked on, on panels just like this, whether or not material culture, whether or not the physical object still has a role to play in a digital age where people spend their time on social media, on their phones. Take a look at this photograph and tell me material culture doesn't matter anymore. I was struck particularly by the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. Look at the signs, some homemade, some professionally done, buttons, masks. So all of the media coverage, all of the international media attention that the Black Lives Matter protests got, they all showed people marching and using material culture in the very same way that it was intended in the 60s and 70s, the 40s and 50s, and the 20s and 30s. So my goal, my hope for making the movement 
is to serve as a, as a guide, a guidebook for current and future activists. What I always say is that material culture was, is, and therefore always will be a part of the civil rights movement. So thank y'all so much for, for, for listening to, to my presentation. I, I appreciate, of course, the, the Robert H. Jackson Center for supporting making the movement from its very beginnings. And, and now with the, the, the book, I, I appreciate your support tremendously. Uh, especially Kristen McMahon, and, and, and of course, to you, Greg Peterson. So thank you all so much for, for, for listening. And um, I, I'd be happy to um, answer any questions that, that anybody have. Let me go ahead and stop the, stop the share here. You know, do you all feel right. like you have a sense that you have filled in a void to which there has been little or no literature? I love the fact that in your uh, prelude, or when you were talking about the book, you're the literature you had followed and uh, the fact that virtually nobody had talked about the material culture and talking about the movement, that in fact, it was just sort of a linear uh, narrative. Here, you've got a book out now that for the really, I think the first time fills in a gap. Do you get a sense of that? A hundred percent. I was very surprised that there wasn't scholarship on this. So it is the first work of its kind to focus on the impact that material culture had on the movement. But Greg, I wanna make a point very clear about this. It is the first book about the material culture's impact on the civil rights movement, but I don't want it to be the last. I think this is hopefully the beginning of the recognition among scholars and activists the importance that these objects had to the movement then, now, and, and in the future. It is the first uh, uh, work to focus on material culture's impact on the movement, but I want it to be sort of an opening salvo. Nothing would make me happier than for other scholars to take up the reign and to see that in time, this is, part of the analysis of the movement, just like organizations and individuals and the church and, 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 and images and photography had on the movement. I want this just to only be the first book on material culture's impact on the movement, not the only one. David, I think I sent you uh, in advance a book uh, or excerpt from a book called Black White Ball Goes to War. And uh, the paragraph dealt with America's hypocrisy on racial issues were never more jarring. During the war, the NAACP redoubled its efforts to curb segregation at ballparks. Ballparks across the country, civil rights advocates handed out stop lynching buttons. The Congress of Industrial Organization, the CIO, moreover established the end Jim Crow in baseball committee. So aside from the movement, as we kind of understand civil rights movement, there was also this sort of using of the material culture to enhance perhaps the integration of baseball as well, which I near and dear to me, and which is a subject which we'll be following up on in, in, uh, after years here today. So uh, it's, got, it's had many of them, including a, a reference to the fact that uh, African-American protesters outside Yankee Stadium brandished signs that read, if we are able to stop bullets, why not balls? 
I mean, it was just that thing. That's, I mean, that, yeah, I was so glad that when you, when you sent that to me, because it's kind of exactly what I'm illustrating here is that there are works of scholarship that, that mention the material culture. Hey, they had signs at this protest. They passed out anti-lynching buttons and, and that was helpful. And I couldn't agree more with that. But this is the first work to look at the, uh, the scope, the broad scope of the movement and to point out that at every stage, in every organization, every time period, regardless of the strategy and the goals, material culture was, was present. That was part, the, what, what you mentioned, that was part of the NAACP's crusade for liberty, uh, which was trying to get lynching uh, outlawed as a, on, on the federal level and passing out buttons. I mean, there it is. Meet the people where they're at. You read my dedication to the book at the beginning of this presentation. Those are the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. Those countless thousands and thousands and thousands of people who made those pins, that wore them, that passed them out. And do you think that every single person at Yankee Stadium in the 1930s was in favor of the civil rights movement and greeted them with a smile and a handshake? People were risking their lives to do this. They were risking their safety, their jobs in order to wear one of those pins. For many people, it was a badge of honor, but it could also make you a target for white supremacist violence. So I, I thought that was a perfect example of the impact material culture had. They're trying to achieve objectives, but as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't always successful, but they kept going back to that strategy. It can work, it can achieve objectives. Think of the patriotism that was used during the war that changed minds, a ninefold increase in the NAACP membership, which leads directly to Thurgood Marshall's defense team and the overturning of Brown uh, less than 10 years after the war. So material culture was there. It was significant. And I think we now are just coming to the realization of its significant to the movement overall. Do you find, uh, probably important for those who are watching this via Zoom and other things, that uh, your father uh, was the founding chief prosecutor of the special court at Sierra Leone, which was a direct lineage from the Nuremberg trial, which is Robert Jackson. And in fact, your dad is the first American to be a chief prosecutor since Robert Jackson. So uh, the Crane family had hold a near and dear part here. But part of your dad's work at Sierra Leone was to get message out, to get pass out stuff there at Sierra Leone. He went out when nobody probably should have gone out into the countryside, gave speeches, passed out literature. I don't know if he passed out buttons, but nevertheless, he did that. And I, I don't know if you ever talked to him about sort of that getting the message out, leaving the message so that it would have an impact on those that felt maybe a little displaced after the, 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 the Civil War. I, I wish you would have made buttons. Uh, I, I would love to add one of those to, to, to the collection. I have, I have spoken with him uh, uh, about that and getting out into the countryside and, and how important that was, especially since the court was in Sierra Leone. If it was viewed as 
outsiders bringing in a foreign system of just justice to tell them what justice looked like. It may have not worked, but going out into the countryside at great personal risk and meeting with people and talking to them and hearing their stories and their criticism and their fears got the people of Sierra Leone to, to buy into the special court, which ultimately is one of the most significant factors in, in, in the successes that the court had. So getting the message out in terms of any cause is important. And I, I, I think both cranes understand uh, that lesson. So curious what your eBay bu budget looks like. I mean, you're out collecting this for a museum. These items are out there. Uh, I'll just I'll give you tell you a personal uh, acquisition um, for my good friend Raleigh Kidder. Raleigh Kidder was the longstanding executive director of the Jackson Center, and he was very proud of the fact that he had attended the Martin Luther King speech in Chicago mm. as a seminary student. He always told me about it, and there on a button search was in fact the Martin Luther King pictured and it had Chicago, you know, Memorial Stadium, you know, 1965. So I went out and acquired it for him, which is now in his collection. And if you don't have it, talk to Raleigh Kidder. <laughs> but are you still out actively looking and searching? Always, I'll, I'll, I'll never stop. You know, that's, that's, that's central to the mission of making the Movement Civil Rights Museum is to, is to preserve these artifacts and to, to give them the respect and the due that they deserve. These are important, significant, social, political, and cultural objects that all Americans should be interested in and, and ushered in some of the most significant changes in the course of American history. I will say that from now to when I started, there is a growing interest. It's not quite as hard to get people to understand the significance, but I also think there are more people looking for this stuff now. It is harder to find than it used to be when I started collecting now almost 20 years ago. There are trade shows, there are organizations like the APIC, the American Political Item Collectors, um, which is a national organization that, that has been central to growing the collection. But as you mentioned, I find this stuff everywhere. Everywhere from antique malls to online sites, to trade shows, to even, even gifts where people donate objects because they understand the significance and they want them to be publicly viewed and, and curated and available for the American public to, uh, to see. Being a collector, another aspect of, of, uh, of, of, I'm an autograph guy, uh, historical autographs. What's the holy grail? What's the what's the missing button that you really got to have? Gosh, how long? How much time do you have? You know, what surprises me most, and I'm not sure if I have. I'm not sure if I have a holy grail. I think I have a lot of holy grails, to be honest with you. What surprises me is that every week I see an object I've never seen before, and I've been doing this for almost 20 years. That that is more powerful to me than getting the rarest button in perfect condition. You know, I think I might be a little bit different than a lot of collectors in the hobby, 
because they want that. They want that rarity and shiny button. I kind of like the, and as a baseball guy, you'll like this. I kind of like the stuff that's been game worn. You know, you can have the perfect autograph ball with the nice signatures, but I'd rather have the one that was there that got kicked around, maybe even at practice. I, I want those, I don't mind if an object has scratches and dings and dents. To me, that's part of the story. The rarity and the condition, that to me is not what makes it a holy grail. What makes it significant is not my perception of it now. What matters is how it impacted them, how it was used to advance the goals, objectives, of the movement. I, I, I want that it was there, it helped. To me, that's the most important reason to, to preserve and to collect these, these artifacts is that they made a difference. They, they made the movement. So you had your first one. How many, what's your collection consist of now? Oh gosh, it's probably, it's, it, it's, in, it's in the four figures in, in terms of individual, if you had to sit there and collect count every single button, every single flyer. And, and, and there are duplicates and triplicates and things like that. But the collection is, is always growing. It's always being curated. And, and I look for those objects that tell the story. People wore these buttons. People held these signs. I don't want to get too wonky about the objects themselves. Remember, they're not souvenirs. They're not collector's items. That's the most significant message of making the movement is that these were the nonviolent weapons that fought Jim Crow. They were there. They were on the front lines. And the people that forged and wielded these weapons are the reason that I do this. Who's the person you would like to have talked to at an interview that you obviously by time and passage of time, they're no longer available. But if you could have, invite somebody over for dinner tonight with you and your wife to talk about the movement, who would it be? You know, you mentioned earlier that I had the, the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Julian Vaughn. I, I also was able to, uh, to meet um, uh, the late Congressman John Lewis, and I interviewed him a couple times for my book, and, and he could not have been more gracious and uh, was interested and, and understood the purpose of making the movement. Gosh, you know, I, I, if, I, if I could, I, I would probably like to talk to people before the 50s and 60s. You know, there, there's so much documentation and there are so many people who have interviewed important people from the movement in that period after World War II. But I would just love to talk with some of the leaders uh, in, in, in the early 20th century. W.E.B. Du Bois, I would love to talk to Marcus Garvey, I would love to talk to Booker T. Washington. When the movement was in its infancy and these gains were anything but assured and to get their perspective on the on the long struggle. And they probably more than anyone understood that they personally would not live to see the gains in which they were fighting for. So I would love to, to hear their perspective on, on, on their view of the movement. And of course, of course, I, I'd want some of those buttons from them, of course. 
Perfect. Finally, what's a question you expected I would be asking you, David, that I haven't asked? I mean, you were there gearing up, you talked to your dad, talk to your mom, say, Greg's going to interview you. Inevitably, Greg will ask this question, and I haven't yet. What's that one? A lot of, a lot of people, you know, they ask about now. Okay, that's all good. I've seen those black and white photos. Hey, I was there at a march in the 1960s. And, and yeah, I, I think that's, that's interesting what you're doing. But I don't want making the movement to be sort of a static history lesson. I want people to see the relevance to today, which is sometimes a big criticism of history books, that they are not relevant to people's lives. I want people to ask me about and to be interested in the immediacy of these objects, the relevance, not just of learning about how this impacted the 20s and 30s and World War II and the March on Washington, but what can I do? Hey, I've joined a civil rights organization or I went to a march and I want to go to more and I want to help do this. What are the strategies that my organization or that I can personally use? So I like it when, when people ask about not just how did this impact the movement, but how is it impacting now and how will it continue to do so uh, in the future? Well, David, and this has been terrific. I've enjoyed this ever so much. I read read your book with interest, and I'm just glad that the Jackson Center could have played a small role early on in, in this and to come full circle here almost seemingly. Almost 10 years, Greg. Yeah. 10 years. Wow. Doesn't seem possible. And the good thing neither you nor I have changed. That's the great thing. <laughs> and over my shoulder, over my shoulder, by the way, is Ron Graham. Ron Graham is a mover and a shaker and a guy who uh, hung around with Malcolm X's of the world. So I'm gonna ask if he's got any pins to see what he's got. So with that, David, I'm gonna just say thank you very much. And I really appreciate the time today. Uh, the pleasure was all mine, Greg, and the Robert H. Jackson Center will always have a, a special place in my heart and anything I can do for y'all, just let me know. Great, enjoy. Take thank y'all so much. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from a program hosted by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.